Osiris. That's where my dad really helped me. During intermissions, like at a dance, he'd make me go out and talk to people at the tables. I would greet him and answer questions or sign something and move on. He said, you got to shake the same hands going down as you did going up. He taught me a lot of good things like that. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Hey everybody, welcome to Salute the Songbird. I'm your host, Maggie Rose. And today I get to make a pretty cool claim that I don't often get to make at the beginning of these episodes. With my guest, I share an entire wall on the side of one of my favorite venues in Nashville, Exit Inn. So my face is painted next to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Wanda Jackson, who is our guest today. And she is an absolute icon She sings with wild abandon. She mixes up rhythm and blues and country and Western, creating an original rock and roll sound in the process that's all her own. She's the queen of rockabilly. She wasn't afraid to step outside of the lines musically. She still isn't. And she was one of the first women to break into the boys club. We talk about how she got her start in 1952 and was discovered at the age of 14 by Hank Thompson. She had to call her mom and ask for permission to join Hank on the first gig he invited her to attend. And her first release charted at number five on the country music charts. Her story is an incredible one of perseverance and hard work, but also of how important it is to be surrounded by people who support you and help to push you forward. She's collaborated with incredible artists like Roy Clark, Elvis Presley, Jack White, and another Elvis, Elvis Costello. Her career is legendary. There's a ton of wisdom in this episode, including some of the guidance her dad gave her, which is just as useful today as it was when she was coming up in the business. Here's my guest, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Wanda Jackson. A little bit about your background. You were born in Maud, shortly lived in L.A., then moved to Bakersfield before you guys moved back to Oklahoma City, where you were given a 15-minute radio segment that you just kind of accepted the opportunity on KLPR. And you just kind of seized the opportunity. and I had to be talked into it. My friends I went to church with, told me about the show. It was an hour of country music. And back then, we didn't have stations that played country all day or pop all day. Right after me was a preacher, 
you know, and right before me was news, but they squeezed in an hour for country music. And the disc jockey dedicated the last 15 minutes to local talent. So we'd go up and try out, and if we could carry a tune, you know, we he'd put us on for 15 minutes. So my friends at church talked me into it, you know, really. I didn't think I could ever do it. I wanted to, but I was kind of backward. And so anyway, I did. I went up there and they went with me and applauded real loud and made me feel good. <laughs> and uh, the disc jockey, yeah, he asked me to come back. Turn your radio on. Oh, yes, turn your radio And listen to the music in the air. Turn your radio on. Oh, yes, turn your radio Heaven's glory share. Then they had a contest, and I won that, and the winner received a 15-minute slot at 5.15, right after the 5 o'clock news, which was a good slot. Prime time, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when, I think you got a month or something like that. But they said, if you can keep this sponsored, we'll let you keep that 15-minute slot. So I worked real hard to keep it sponsored. I had a furniture store and a lumber company and I remember going out and selling it myself, you know, which <laughs> shocks me today to think I did that. <laughs> Not it, me, but yes. How old were you at this time? Well, I was pretty young then, 14 maybe. It was just me and my guitar. And my parents, I hadn't been on there long till they said, Wanda, there's something thump, 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 and in your show, I don't hear it when other people sing. So I got to notice, and it was my foot tapping on the base of the microphone. <laughs> I always patted my foot, even standing in high heels. <laughs> right. <laughs> you already had that kick drum. Yeah, but I did it. It's just you. Uh, I got the lead in a high school play. It was a musical, Anything Goes. <laughs> my teacher said, she comes running up to the stage at a rehearsal. Said, Wanda, you're doing the song great, but you've got to stop patting that foot. <laughs> yeah, that was my introduction to pop music. Well, with your show on KLPR, you were then discovered by quite a reputable artist at the time. Yeah. Mr. Hank Thompson. When I hear that steel guitar, it makes me feel surprised. Pretty girls are dancing, just listen to that crowd From Tennessee to Texas when they hear me do my thing They call me Mr. Honky Tonk, the king of western swing My hero, as it turned out, I just had always loved the western swing and loved Hank And sure enough, he was living in Oklahoma City for 
a few years there in his career period. And I didn't know it. So after my show, someone came up and said, Wanda, we've got a call for you. And I said, well, who is it? And they said, I don't know. It's some man. Oh, it's probably my daddy. Okay. So I go out. <laughs> he says, Wanda, this is Hank Thompson. I just nearly lost it right there. <laughs> he was listening to my radio show as he was driving and wanted to know if I'd come and sing Saturday night with him and his band. I couldn't believe it, you know. I said, well, Mr. Thompson, I would love to, but I've got to ask my mother. (laughs) He said, well, how old are you, girl? (laughs) Fourteen. Oh, my. He said, well, if she'll let you, let you come, we'll see you, you know, Saturday night. So that was my first. Oh, I was getting paid along for little shows professionally, but That was my really catalyst that, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but something like that. Oh, I mean, that's when it became official. You became a real pro. How did your studies fare with all of this other activity, extracurricular activity in music? My studies didn't do too well. (laughs) (laughs) I passed. I always passed. But it was kind of a miracle that I would. I was writing songs and doing everything and designing clothes instead of doing my studies. But I had a real good girlfriend. We had to do an art project in a history lesson, and she was a good artist. And I was going to California to do my first recording session with Hank on Decker Records. And that history teacher did not like the idea that I was going during school time, you know. And, you know, I would have dropped out of school if I'd had to. So I went ahead and went, but he made it hard on me. But I had my girlfriend draw the picture for the project. And so I wound up passing. (laughs) He passed me. You have some good friends. They encourage you to do the show. They're helping you with your projects. Absolutely. And out of that recording session, my first release got up to number five, I think, five or eight in the country music charts. So it was a good deal for me. I love in stories that I've heard just about how wonderfully supportive your parents were, giving you your first guitar, but then also your father being a musician himself, kind of showing you the way, going on the road with you when things started to really kick off to look out for his little girl and also just to cast that projection of she's a good girl, her dad's out with her. I couldn't have done it without that kind of help. Not a teenage girl out on the road or something by herself, and they knew that. And I didn't know anything about money, little old jobs that I was working. I'd forget to get paid because I was having too much fun. I forgot all about getting paid. But my folks just put their life on hold, literally, for about six to ten years. And they just gave all of their energy and time and love 
to me. My mother made my clothes, and she worked for the government. She held down a regular job, and we had her mother lived with us, who was an invalid for a while, and she took care of that and my fan club. And then my daddy helped me so much in my career and going with me and keeping me on a tight rein to make sure my reputation stayed intact. I never rode in a bus with the band guys. And of course, without him, I would have had to. Back then, our reputations were very important. Especially being a woman. Right. And a young woman. Yeah. Well, you talk about your clothes and how your mom helped you design them. And I heard you tell my friend Amy from Diddy TV. I loved your conversation with her in this podcast I listened to. You told a really great story about how you would design clothes together. You would see an outfit on Liz Taylor or Marilyn Monroe that you loved, you'd sketch it out, and then you and your mom would work together to put together these wonderful stage ensembles. But one of those outfits you wore for the first time that you ever played the Grand Ole Opry. Well, it it wasn't very much by today's standards, of course. But to start with, I was trying to dress like the other girls in country western, they called it music. There's full skirts and cowboy hats and scarves and a guitar and boots. And I told Mother, I said, I just feel smothered up there. <laughs> right. Because I'm real short anyway. And she made most of my clothes, always did. She could fit me like a glove. She said, well, I could make those clothes. And She looked at one of the nudie outfits that I bought, and nudie was the top guy. She said, well, that doesn't look so difficult. I can do that. (laughs) And sure enough, she could do that. She proved it. So we put our heads together, and I went to a straight skirt, and I told her I wanted glamorous with high heels. I want to wear earrings and that. We made it not strapless, but a sweetheart neck. And it wasn't real low by any means. But Daddy would always check my line here. Your hemline. Yes. He'd say, it's getting a little low there. Better bring that up a little. (laughs) Room and Mother would say, where do you want it? And I said, just leave it where it is. It's fine. (laughs) But He tried real hard. (laughs) So you had been playing with more of a Western swing band, and the first time you go to the Opry, you're wearing an outfit you're very proud of. And the Opry still has a bit of this expectation. There's a bit of a dress code at the Opry. I, I wear outfits on stage outside of the Opry that I would maybe think two or three times about wearing at the Opry itself. Especially in 1954, something like that. Nobody told me. It really it wasn't the Opry's fault that the story gets told like I'm mad at the Opry or something. I, I wasn't mad at Yeah, I was mad, come to think yeah. of it. <laughs> I was. You're allowed to be mad. I've seen you at the Opry since then. I know that 
yeah, a staple yeah, there, but yeah. But this dress was just a little sweetheart neck and a halter neck, pink fringe, like a hot pink leather fringe down the sides and around the here in rhinestone. And so Ernest Tubb came up to me and said, are you Wanda Jackson? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you're up next, honey. Better get ready. I said, well, I am. I had my guitar on and everything. I was ready. He said, well, honey, you can't go on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry like that. And I said, like what? He said, you can't show your shoulders. And I said, I don't have another one with me. This is all I brought for the show tonight. Well, you're going to have to cover up your shoulders. So I had to go back and put on this Western French jacket that I had worn and cover my shoulders and go out and sing. And I was in tears. I could barely sing. While I was on trying to get through my song, something going on behind me, they were upstaging me. And that went on at the Opry, which is bad show business. Doesn't anymore, but it used to. And they, Manny Pearl and String Bean were acting silly. And I'm sure it was funny, but all the audience was watching them, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. But well, Maybe it's better. I'm not doing a good job anyway. <laughs> so I got out of there and I said, I'm not ever coming back. And I didn't until I came back with Jack White's band. and We had a horn section. I had drums. <laughs> it was the Friday Night Opry, but it was still there in the Ryman. So I thought, okay, my terms. <laughs> As you should. Well, and that album you made with Jack White is tremendous. I love that you called it The Party Ain't Over. That was his idea. I said, that's bad English. He said, (laughs) title.
how long have you been recording music? Well, I'm not good at math, but I started in 1954. And you haven't stopped? No, I've always recorded. And there was a time when I didn't do much in America, but I was busy all the time in Europe, and I was going back and forth, back and forth. You know, that was very hard on the body when I was doing that four and five times a year. But I recorded over there and had some success. So that kept me working, and I was glad of it. But then in 1995, Rosie Flores invited me to come sing with her on her new album, which I did. And when it came out, these people were calling her and wanting to book us, wanted us to come to their venue. And she said, Wanda, I've got to hire an agency. I can't keep up with this. (laughs) She wasn't prepared for that, and I wasn't either. So that's what she did. And we wound up going five weeks on the road with our show and all these venues across America that had rockabilly, and I knew nothing about them. And they didn't think I was still alive, (laughs) the new generation of kids, I think. So we had good crowds, very good. And that was the beginning of my kind of comeback in America. The beautiful evolution of your music that led you to this audience is so interesting because you did release all these records to country radio and they were well received. But then right after you graduated high school, you are immediately out on the road with Elvis Presley, famously, and his influence starts to manifest. One song that I do love where you make it very clear to the audience that you're blending these two sounds is I Gotta Know. Well, I thought that you was a warm romance, but all you ever do is dance, 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 so I bop-a-dee-bop the whole night long to the knockout music of a jukebox song. One thing, I gotta know, I gotta know, I gotta know if our love's the real thing, where is Even the time signature kind of changes and you're saying one line in a very country styling, like a almost patsy kind of vibe. But then, you know, you kick into what becomes, I would say, if I could be so bold, is your your sound, your style, your rock and roll identity. You're right. And the lady here in Oklahoma City wrote that for me. Really? Uh She knew you well then, yes. And this preceded Let's Have a Party. Yes. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll, but moving in a groove is gonna satisfy my soul. Let's have a party. Let's have a party. Throw out a to the score, let's buy some more, let's have a party tonight. I never kissed a bear. Which ended up blowing up and doing everything that it did but you're out on the road with Elvis Presley and you're surrounded by you know all these really well-known men but you are the only woman they were all upstarts like myself 
And for about five minutes, I was more popular than all of them. (laughs) Not for long. But still legendary in the sense that you were the pioneer and out there making incredible music, cracking the top 40, and then following up with Right or Wrong. Right or Wrong, I'll be with you. getting Grammy nominations, going over to Europe and finding that niche audience that understood just how wonderful that 1950s rock and roll sound was. And they were devoted and following you, which makes sense that you went to Europe because I think a lot of times, even now, some great musicians get overlooked and then end up breaking wide open in Europe and they become loyal to that fan base because they were more perceptive to that new music. It's kind of amazing. The artists that are popular over there, we get together and say, this is awesome, you know, for us, because Americans are pretty quick to look for what's happening next. And Europeans are not. If they like you, man, well, country fans are good at that too. I'll have to give them credit. If they love you, they love you regardless. But Europe is like that also. They'd come in with stacks of records, you know, like carrying them for me to sign. (laughs) And they were asking questions like, now who played bass on that hard-headed woman? Oh, well, a hard-headed woman, soft, dirty man, been causing trouble ever since the world began, oh yeah. We had an argument, you know, they talked about this. <laughs> I said, I don't know who I really know. <laughs> There's complete audio files, yes. Sometimes I knew and sometimes I didn't. <laughs> You've made quite a few records. It's understandable that you wouldn't know every credit for each one over the years, but... It on the records, so you couldn't go back and, and see what uh, person was on that particular song. So I didn't know, didn't remember, I should say. Were you encouraged by your label at the time to dabble in all these different genres because that was natural to you, or did you get some pushback? (laughs) A lot of pushback. I was with DECA for two years, and when that contract ran out, I wanted to go to Capitol because Hank Thompson was on Capitol, and I was signed with his manager also, Jim Halsey. I just always liked Capitol Records for that reason. So this time they signed me. They had a chance before, but they said girls don't sell records. So (laughs) they waited, but they did sign me in 56 as a female country artist. And here I was doing rockabilly, I was doing blues, old Jimmy Rogers blues stuff. I was doing folk things. They didn't know what to do with me. They kept 
wanting to pigeonhole me, you know, just. You know, labels are still saying that every day. <laughs> I've I heard that so many times. We love you. We just don't know what to do with you. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, supposed they, to make you feel better. They didn't market it right. You know, we know now, but never complained that my music has given me the opportunity to make my living doing the two things that I love, and that's travel and, and make music and sing and entertain people. I, I like that. When you are a true entertainer, you had to rise up through the rankings and, and do it the old-fashioned way, which is get that grassroots following. But, you know, I feel sorry for the artist in a way I do, <laughs> that have this monstrous hits, their first one, and they aren't experienced. They don't know how to talk to an, a DJ or to someone like yourself or how to handle a heckler in the audience. They just don't know. And it must be hard for them. You need those hours behind the mic. There's yeah, nothing that can fast track that. You can try, but it'll be hard. I think, you know, sometimes, especially today, people who are musicians are expected to be talented, great songwriters, great performers, great promoters, self-promoters. And I don't think that a lot of the greatness in rock and roll, especially like you were there living in this time where I think some of the best music in rock and roll was emerging. You didn't have to be really talented at everything marketing. You had to be a great musician and a great entertainer. And I think that we're forsaking a lot of talent now because you aren't able to do it all and, and you know, be everything to promote your career. Yeah, I've said many times, I'm glad I'm not starting out right now. I'd never make it. <laughs> I don't know well, about that. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I'm glad young people like you know that. That's good. I love listening to all your records, the original recordings, the re-recordings that you did with another Elvis in your life, Elvis Costello, and of course, Jack White. You have this vocal ID that's just unmistakably your own, and there's character to that. And I think also a lot of modern recordings, you are expected to be perfect, and there's mm -hmm. auto-tune, and you lose a lot of that life and that urgency that makes your music so special. You know, there's some grit there, there's femininity, but there's also toughness, and yeah, no one was doing that, and I don't think... A ton of people are doing that in the mainstream today, even. I don't think so. I don't see it. It's still the greatest business to be in. I agree. All over again. <laughs> it's broken my heart a thousand times, but I'm still so very happy to be able to make a living doing this. And Absolutely. It's taken me to so many places and put me in front of so many great people like yourself and... um Put me on a wall with someone like you, which is very humbling. <laughs> Thank you. That's where my dad really helped me. He, he said, you are lucky to get to have a job like this. And you get to be around happy people mostly. You know, you, you entertain them. They're happy. They're dancing. They're eating, having a drink. He said, but remember, that's your job. 
not to take advantage of that. So if your contract says to be there at nine, you may not go on till 11, but your contract says nine, you be there at nine and you respect that. And during intermissions, like at a dance, he'd make me go out and talk to people at the tables. I wouldn't sit down, but I would greet him and answer questions or sign something and move on. He said, you got to shake the same hands going down as you did going up. He taught me a lot of good things like that. Such a great mentor. You just said it so perfectly, which substantiates why you titled your book this, but every night is a Saturday night, a country girl's journey to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's so true. I've said this to my own dad, like when I'm performing, it's a job, but everyone else is there to have a celebration. And I read your title and your book and I can't wait to finish it. But the idea that every night is a Saturday night is so true as a performer. Like you are in their space to let loose and we are there to help them have a good time. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of shaking babies and kissing hands, as they say. <laughs> Making them happy. And it's a pleasure. Well, it's Saturday night. Hey there, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Wanda Jackson, who is delightful and adorable, but most of all, impressive. And I have to say, reflecting on this conversation, I really enjoyed putting this episode together in particular because I feel like we're getting to pay tribute to someone who really deserves our recognition and our appreciation. And it was so fun to revisit all of these songs that she's contributed to our musical vernacular and just hear how spirited she was in a time that was undeniably way more challenging than it is now if you are a prospective artist in the music industry. But that's what compelled me to start this series in the first place. I wanted to recognize those who deserved recognition and encourage that kind of spirit and camaraderie, not only among women in the industry, but among us all. And it just feels pretty awesome to speak to Wanda and hear her gratitude for that recognition, but also her pride in knowing for certain that these were unbelievable accomplishments made by her. And we are about to finish our conversation by talking about one of the highest honors that she received, although it was a little overdue. So if you feel like there's someone that you need to recognize or just pump up a little bit, even if you might be a little late on that, go ahead and do it. 
Let's hear the end of this incredible story and conversation with Wanda Jackson. I just want to finish out by, of course, honoring the end of your your book's title, A Country Girl's Journey to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and just talk about how wonderful that uh, rectifying of history came to be because you worked with Elvis Costello on Heart Trouble, and this was in the early 2000s, and he's obviously a huge fan of yours. I know that you tried to gift him a box set of your number ones, and he was like, oh, I, I already have that, of course. Yeah, you're right, yeah. <laughs> Which I love. But yeah. he found out that you weren't inducted yet to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. He just was horrified, you know, or whatever the word he used. and. Others said that too, but Elvis really jumped in. He uh, wrote a letter to the powers that be, said, the guitar that you're wanting from me, you'll never have until it can hang next to Wanda Jackson's. I thought, my goodness, for an artist like that, it's so humbling when you hear people talk like that, that you admire. But he said, because you were the first and he was correct. And all sorts of other people corroborated what he said. Bruce Springsteen, Cindy Lauper, all sorts of people. And then Roseanne Cash inducted you. And one of the things she said is that like you rock, your reputation will always matter, which is something your father definitely drove home. And he was such a great mentor, but it was something that had to happen. And it's, a correction of history, but also just an acknowledgement of what you did to advance forward music for women and us being able to exist in those spaces. I just never dreamed that I'd be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that my husband and my family and my fans worked very hard to let them see that I wasn't in there and everybody was getting on the bandstand. And bandwagon, rather, (laughs) and wanting it to happen. I couldn't believe it. But the night that he got the letter that day and he invited the whole family, even ones from his side of the family came. I didn't know what was going on, but my granddaughter walked in with two dozen of these pink roses. And everyone was standing right here around the dining room table and he poured everyone a champagne and he announced to me that I had been selected to be inducted and of course I broke down crying that everyone toasted to it. It was quite a night and quite an accomplishment for him too and for Terry, the president at the time. So It was wonderful, and that night is the biggest night in my life. You know, I've had so many. It's hard to have one. Even last night, they had a reception for me, the, the state of Oklahoma, to honor me. I've got two different streets in Oklahoma named for me. You know, I notice other towns and states I go through, 
I know that someone's from there, but I don't see anything on the highways like they're proud of them. There's some, but so anyway, Oklahoma's been very good to me. And last night was a deal they were announcing that my portrait would be hanging in the Governor's Hall of Fame in the Capitol building in Oklahoma City. So that was really something. That's <laughs> tremendous. Nice. So yes, you have had many, many nights and one as recent as last night. That's just insane. I'm still high from that. I'm just so excited. <laughs> Oklahoma has been good to you. You've been very good to her though as well. And when we were on the road out my band, we listen to your music, especially when we're we're in the Midwest. Oh, we're driving through Oklahoma. Yes. Oh, yeah. We got to. Gets us ready to go. Gets you ready to go. That's what Elvis Costello said. He said, I play your this particular tape when we're in the, the bus getting ready for a show. <laughs> it's great pre-show music to get any band energized yeah. and ready to hit the stage for sure. Right. Hey, it's been great talking to you, Maggie. I, I appreciate you, and I have enjoyed it very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you, and congratulations again on last night. Okay. Thank you, honey. Love you. Bye, Miss Wanda. You too. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the iconic Wanda Jackson, a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and an Oklahoma treasure and a published author and an extremely accomplished musician. Do yourself a favor and revisit all of her catalog. You will have hours of entertainment on your hands. And to keep up with me and my music, you can follow me on my socials at I am Maggie Rose. You can see all of my tour dates at MaggieRoseMusic.com. And to get exclusive Salute the Songbird content, live stream concerts, and more, join my With the Band family. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media, hosted by Maggie Rose, produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose, and Kirsten Cluthy, with production assistance from Grace Romer and Kip Young, edited by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media, music by Maggie Rose, show logo by Premier Music Group, graphics by Catherine Boyles and Mark Dowd. Thank you so much for listening. And to close out the show, here's two shots from Wanda's latest release, Encore, featuring L. King and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts.
Osiris. <laughs>